Good morning, everyone. I'm Matthew Aldrich. I'm a deacon here at City of Hope. Um, we're going we're gonna to take a look at Isaiah this morning. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 1 to 4. Before I read, I'll say a few words here. I first came across this passage, namely verses 3 and 4, um, when I was in college and I was trying to get into a fraternity. I was a pledge, um, a pr- prospective member of this fraternity. And if you know anything about that, people trying to get into a fraternity often have to go through some amount of grief and pain in order to get in. Um, and in, in my case, I, I was it's part of a Christian fraternity, and part of that was read, uh, memorizing the quotations and Bible verses chosen by certain members of the fraternity who were already there. And one of my really good friends um, was already in this fraternity, and he had us memorize uh, verses 3 and 4 of, of chapter 46. I don't know if I did it or not, but I did eventually get into this fraternity, and then went on to become probably one of the worst members there was, because I was completely individualistic. I didn't really do many of the events or participate in very much of the things that the fraternity put on. Um, being individualis- individualistic in a fraternity is a little counterproductive. Uh, but we'll get back to that. Um, next time I came across this passage was just a few years ago. I just was somewhat randomly reading through Isaiah. And I remember hitting upon these four verses and, and just from thinking how beautiful they are because of the comparison, the contrast of God with idols. And now that I've studied it, a lot more over the past few weeks. Obviously, I've learned the depth of this, of this section and can much better appreciate the context uh, within the book of Isaiah and the historical context of this passage and the meanings of the pronouns um, and the audience of these comforting words. And before I read, let me say a little bit about the, the place of this passage within Isaiah. If you were to go back to chapters 36 to 40, there's a, there's a historical interlude which talks about King Hezekiah. And during, there's a couple different stories about Hezekiah um, and his interactions with some of the regional powers. We hear about how God um, saves Jerusalem from Assyria after King Hezekiah appeals to God for help. And then we hear about how Hezekiah gets sick, he appeals to God, and then God heals him. And then we have this curious incident of the king of Babylon visiting Hezekiah, and then Hezekiah naively or somewhat boastfully showing all the riches of Jerusalem to the king of Babylon. And then Isaiah comes on the scene, the prophet Isaiah, and he tells Hezekiah that someday this same Babylon will come and carry away Jerusalem's riches and children into exile to Babylon. And then the story ends with these very strange words from Hezekiah. Hezekiah says, or the the passage says, Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. And then from there, the book of Isaiah just soars into prophetic, majestic poetry for chapters upon chapters. From God himself describing God's passion for his name, God's utter superiority um, to the idols and false gods, 
God's maneuvering of the nations to bring about judgment, and so much more. And then woven throughout this soaring poetry, we hear time and time again God saying, fear not, and other comforting phrases through these chapters, including our passage this morning. And then the story expands beyond Judah into surrounding nations as they share, begin to share the blessings of God. Um, and then we come to Isaiah 53, where we hear about the man of sorrows who will back up God's comforting world-including words with suffering and pain as he carries the sins of the people. If you can get away from distractions for a few hours and read 40 to 55 of Isaiah, it's really well worth your time. It's pretty amazing. And so, as I said, we find our, our passage this morning within this section of majestic poetry, and I hope that we can all understand this passage better today and grasp what it says about idols, what it says about God, and what it's saying to us. So let's read this passage. Isaiah 46, verses 1 to 4. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and will save. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, grant us a few moments now of, uh, of attentiveness to your word and free of distractions. I pray that I would speak well, not be prideful, not be arrogant, but say what you would have me say. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So as we look at what this passage says about idols, about God, and to us this morning, the thesis or the, the main topic of this sermon is simple. God is better than idols. And this is supported by this passage um, which you could summarize as follows. People make and carry idols, and the idols cannot save them. The one true God made and carries his people, and our God saves us. I'll repeat it again. People, people make and carry idols, and the idols cannot save them. The one true God made and carries his people, and the one true God saves them. And from such a reality, we can derive a clear call to action for us. To run to the arms of God and throw down our idols. Now let's fill in the details. In the, the time of the prophet Isaiah, the descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people, they were divided already into a northern kingdom, into a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was Israel, the southern kingdom was Judah. Um, and this was around, Isaiah uh, was active around 700 years before Christ, 700 B.C. And during Isaiah's time, Assyria invaded the north um, while Isaiah was down in the south, more around Jerusalem. But while he was um, preaching in Jerusalem, Assyria invaded the north, took some of its people into exile, um, and then Assyria and Egypt together were the dominant powers in the region. 
but Babylon was in the fray, although to a lesser extent at this point. And then about 70 years later, 70 years after the last event recorded in Isaiah, uh, Babylon rises to dominance by defeating both Assyria and Egypt in a major battle. Um, and then over the following 20 years, Babylon moves in and around Jerusalem, and he's, Babylon begins to take Judah um, captive itself, invading three times and exiling people from Judah. Um, if you remember uh, the prophet Daniel, he is taken by Babylon during this first invasion. And if you remember what I said a moment ago about King Hezekiah, uh, how he showed the wealth of the nation to Babylon, well, the Babylonian invasion and exile was a clear fulfillment of Isaiah's words of judgment to Hezekiah. But Isaiah wrote this passage this morning long before Judah's exile by Babylon, and even before Babylon rose to be the dominant power in the region. Yet, Isaiah describes the fall of Babylon and hope for God's people. So Isaiah here, as a prophet of God, is looking quite far into the future past Judah's current circumstances, past the future exile by Babylon, and on towards deliverance. Bel and Nebo, mentioned in verse 1, are Babylonian gods. Bel means the title Lord, um, the creator, the main god of Babylon, and Nebo was his son. So if you remember, the king of Babylon gave Daniel a new name when he took him captive. He named him Belteshazzar, which means Bel, protect the king. Um, and also that king's name at the time was King Nebuchadnezzar, and you can hear the word Nebo in his name. So these are the false gods of Babylon. And along with their carved images, their idols, these gods were made by people, and they were carried around by the people, and they could not save the people. So as I mentioned Isaiah's chapters 40 to 55, um, it speaks over and over again about God's utter superiority to false gods. And one obvious reason why God is superior to the idols um, is that the idols are just man-made. If you flip back a page or two in your Bible to Isaiah 44, um, you'll find there a condemnation of the worship of idols. And, and the argument is very simple. Idols are a human creation, so they are, have absolutely no divine power, and they deserve no worship. In that passage in Isaiah 44, um, it describes a craftsman cutting down a tree, using some of that for wood, for fuel, for a fire, to keep him warm and to bake bread. And then he uses the other wood to make an idol, and it says he falls down to it and worships it. So he does not consider how illogical this is. His heart is deluded, as the passage says. So to add to the folly of idolatry, as our passage in Isaiah 46 describes, the man-made idols are a burden to their worshipers. This is the main theme of these four verses, the carrying of burdens. The Babylonians carry the idols of Bel and Nebo, verse 1 says, as burdens on weary beasts. Let me make a quick comment here about the pronouns used in these, in these verses because they confused me at first. And in fact, when I first read this a few years ago, I think I had it totally wrong. Um, but now I think I understand what's going on a little better here. 
in verse 1, when it says, their idols are on beasts and livestock. Who is they? Who are they? Who's idols? And I think this is talking about the idols that are the images of Bel and Nebo. So, in other words, Bel and Nebo are the false gods, and they have corresponding carved images or statues, you could say, um, that are theirs. And then verse 1 continues to say, these things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. And I think the you there is referring to the Babylonian people who carry around these physical idols. And then in verse 2 it says, they stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. And I think all these, again, are referring to the false gods of Babylon, Bel and Nebo, not just their physical idols. And there's a distinction, in, but they're also inseparable in this, at the same time. Um, and so that is, Bel and Nebo stoop. Bel and Nebo cannot save the burden. Bel and Nebo go into captivity. So the images of Bel and Nebo, the idols in verses 1 and 2, they are burdens that are carried around on beasts. In fact, they are born as burdens on weary beasts. They're heavy. The animals are tired. The people have to load these idols up on animals to transport them. Both man and beast are weighed down by the effort of caring for their gods. Is this effort worth it? Can the gods save the people? One book I read um, on this passage said that the Babylonians had an annual ritual of carrying and carrying the idols, the images of Bel and Nebo, into Babylon in a sort of New Year's celebration, New Year's parade. And the gods would then foretell the events of the coming year. The scene described here in verses 1 to 2 is of quite a different sort of parade. These heavy idols are loaded onto the backs of beasts of burden as the gods go into captivity. So look at the end of verse 2. The gods themselves go into captivity. This, this may refer to the capture um, by, of Babylon by Cyrus, king of Persia, which was to come. And Cyrus is an important figure in the book of Isaiah, and we'll mention him again later. So the idols cannot even save themselves, the, let alone the Babylonian people. The Babylonians who will take Judah into captivity will later themselves go into captivity while their idols remain completely powerless. In fact, during the whole wearying endeavor of moving these idols around, Bel and Nebo are bowing down in submission. They, as as the, our passage says, they stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. So no, no, the effort of carrying and caring for these gods, these idols, are not, is not worth it. The false gods and their idols cannot save the people. So the people make and carry idols, and the idols cannot save them. Now, let's talk about our God. These verses 1 and 2, together with 3 and 4, they directly compare the gods. Just like the song we sing about beholding our God, and it's all filled with comparisons and how nothing can compare with our God. That's what this passage is about. 
And this is where the beauty of the passage really shines through. But before I get to that, um, let me make sure that we understand the audience and to whom verses 3 and 4 are addressed and to whom they apply. So after all, uh, we are, we're reading an ancient text written about 27 centuries ago, and that can bother people sometimes. Verse 3 says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel. So, verses 3 and 4 are for the house of Israel, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So how can this matter to us, who are, biological, who are not biological descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And let's not just ignore these words and make assumptions, because this is another beautiful thing about Isaiah. Do you remember how I said the story of Isaiah expands beyond Judah as the other nations begin to share in the blessings of God? Well, this is part of what we see here. I was referring there, though, to Isaiah 49. So Isaiah 49, verse 6, God is speaking in, in 49 to this unidentified servant who we learn about more and more uh, as the chapters go. Um, but this is what God says to his servant in Isaiah 49. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So God's salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. Foreigners have always been included in Israel, but that expansion accelerates with the coming of this servant that God speaks to in Isaiah. And 21 centuries later, or in the 21st century, uh, we have the benefit of a fuller understanding of who this servant is and his work um, as we read the New Testament and read about Jesus Christ. Uh, Also, many, many texts in the New Testament and also in the Old Testament explain the true composition of the house of Israel. So the clearest and most succinct passage I have found comes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. Um, and it says this, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to, the, according to the promise. So we Christians, as this verse says and many others in the New Testament, we Christians are descendants of Abraham. Not biologically, but spiritually because of the promises of God. So when God told Abraham to number the stars and he promised him countless offspring in a promised land, God was talking about us Christians here even today. And I think that is why we sang the song with our kids. Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. So when God says, listen to me, he's talking to us as he was talking to the remnant of Israel long ago. And one more thing before I go on. What what does God mean here when he says the house of Israel? The house. Do you remember when I said that I was uh, a pretty terrible fraternity brother because I was individualistic? And how individualism and, and fraternities don't really mix well together? Well, in these verses, God is not talking about the individual. He is talking to the house of Jacob. He's speaking to the corporate body of Jacob. And we just explained how the descendants of Jacob are Christians. 
So God is speaking to the corporate body of Christians, the corporate body of believers, and we have a word for that, the church. So in addition to Israel, God here is speaking to the church, to our church in these verses. And the corporate, pa- the corporate focus of this passage is in clear contrast to that story of Hezekiah that I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. If you remember, Hezekiah gets the bad news of a future exile to Babylon, and all he says is, good, at least it won't happen to me. So Hezekiah is thinking about the individual. He's thinking about himself here. But God is not here speaking to the individual. He is not thinking about the individual only. God is thinking about the people as a whole. And as we'll see, uh, he is for his church corporately. And unlike the idols, the one true God, our God, he made and carries his people and the one true God saves us. So let's hear uh, verses 3 and 4 again. Let me read them again to refresh our memory. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born from me, born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. So unlike idols made by people, our God makes his church. That is what God says in verse 4. I have made. With no effort on Abraham's part, God called him, if you remember, and he made him the father of a multitude of nations. So God initiated this relationship with Israel. It was God who established his covenant, his bond and blood, his attachment between God himself and Abraham and Abraham's offspring throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. It was God who sent Jesus Christ also to reconcile both Jews and Gentiles in one body through the cross, as Ephesians 3.16 says. So that body God made is his church. God made Israel from its beginning. God made his church today. And unlike idols that need to be carried around on weary beasts, our God carries his people. And once again, the concept of carrying burdens is the main theme of, these passage, of this passage. We see in verses 3 and 4, the phrases, been born, B-O-R-N-E, carried, I will carry you, I will bear, I will carry. So idols were the burden before in verses 1 and 2. Now in verses 3 and 4, we are the burden. Um, but the description is now so much different. God is not struggling like a beast of burden under our weight. He carries from the womb as you would compassionately carry an infant. And he does not give up. He carries his people from the beginning to the end. We see the phrases uh, before your birth, from the womb, to your old age, to gray hairs. Praise God. He will not let his people down. So here we are, many years later, after Abraham, in the modern age. And I, I don't know if we are the baby people of God or the gray-haired people of God because I don't know how long the story of God's people will last. But I know we are somewhere in there. And I know that we are on this timeline mentioned in these verses. 
And so therefore, the ancient words spoken by Isaiah are completely relevant to us today. Practically, though, how does God carry his people? He carries us through the context of our church. Much like how these verses are addressed to God's people collectively and not individually. Paul, uh, in the New Testament, he wrote a letter to the Galatian church. And this is what we read earlier this morning. The Galatian church was, were themselves under this burden of legalism. And Paul tells them to carry each other's burdens. Uh, as he says in Galatians 6, 1 and 2, Paul wrote, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So, if you remember, I said earlier that uh, this section of Isaiah that we're, that we're in, 40 to 55, it has many, many words of God's comfort uh, to his people, including our pastors this morning. And when we think about God carrying his people in the context of the church, we have to remember that the church is meant to be a, cl- a place of comfort for his people. Um, so here from 2 Corinthians, this is chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So God carries his people through us carrying and loving each other. Individualism in a church, like in a fraternity, is counterproductive. Now finally, we come to the end of verse 4. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. God will save his people. Remember, the gods of Babylon could, could not do anything to save anybody. But our God will save his people. Now in ancient times, God saved the Israelites from this particular Babylonian encounter. He saves them by the hand of Cyrus, king of Persia, who allows the exiles eventually to return to Jerusalem. And this is what, uh, this is what Ezra and Nehemiah are, is all about. These, they describe, these books in the Bible describe the events of Cyrus making a proclamation, sending the Israelites back to rebuild the temple. And Isaiah, long before this event, long before Cyrus even comes around, Isaiah in chapters 44 and 45, right before our passage, um, Isaiah names Cyrus by name as the man whom God will use to bring his people out of exile. But, but Cyrus was not the man of sorrows mentioned and described in Isaiah 53. Cyrus could give Israel's land back, but he could not give them new hearts. Cyrus could set them free from captivity, but he could not set them free from sin. And so, ultimately, God saves his people through this man of sorrows from Isaiah 53, who is Jesus Christ, who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. And Jesus made many to be accounted righteous, meaning believers in Jesus are reckoned to be sinless. 
because of him. And that is the only way to get to God, the only way to truly be saved. And so, so there is much to appreciate and understand in these verses. Uh, but the main point is that God is better than idols. And the superiority of God is seen in the clear contrast between the two. How people make and carry idols, and the idols cannot save them. But the one true God makes and carries his people, and he does save them. And this reality calls us to action. To, to run to the arms of God. And to throw down our idols. Let's discuss this idea of throwing down our idols a little more. Um, our idols, as we saw, are burdensome and utterly worthless. The things that we turn to for rest and salvation will not give us rest or salvation. They will weary us. And there are all sorts of idols in the United States and in the world. Um, they are all consuming. They're exhausting. I recently read a book uh, by the missionary David Sitton. Um, he wrote a book called Reckless Abandon. And David Sitton was a missionary in Papua New Guinea um, just pretty recently in the, in the 80s and 90s. And the people there, the tribal people that he was witnessing to, they're captured and controlled by animism, uh, the worship of the gods of nature around them. Uh, Sitton says this about the burden of this idolatry. And I quote, I compare the struggle of tribal people to repent of animism as similar to the difficulty that we in the West have in repenting of materialism. It isn't a simple matter of repenting from a single sin, but rather a reorientation of one's entire way of thinking and living. This is the process of sanctification as the Holy Spirit teaches truth and transforms all of us steadily into the images of Christ. End quote. This is, this is a pretty good summary of our state. Our entire way of thinking here in the West is oriented towards things. Um, houses, cars, toys, phones, screens. And from these things, we seek approval. We seek pleasure, comfort, entertainment, security, self-assurance, and so forth. These are our idols. Uh, we focus our efforts on obtaining things that will not satisfy us, and these things are a burden to us, just as we saw that Bel and Nebo were a burden to the Babylonians. If you remember in Matthew 19, uh, the rich young ruler, the rich young man comes to Jesus. He's looking for help. But he could not give up his things when confronted by Jesus, so he goes away from that conversation sorrowful and sad. His things did not make him happy. Um, and they only kept him, clearly they kept him from finding happiness in God. Maybe, maybe you truly think that, uh, that your Western idols will save you. Maybe you really think that the things and the pleasures are supreme. Uh, Babylon seemed to think so. Let their fate of captivity by Cyrus the Persian be an example to you. Um, but surely, surely the weariness of our present age alone 
is a powerful enough example of the worthlessness of idols. We have the rat race and the endless climb of the corporate ladder. We have broken toys that fill our houses and become a literal burden to us sometimes. Uh, we have the need to constantly rinse and repeat over and over and over and over again in our lives. And we can fill our minds with entertainment so that we don't have to stop to consider our weary march toward dissatisfaction, but the entertainment will cease sometime. So cast down your idols and run to the arms of God. Verses 3 and 4 tell us the benefit of being in the strong arms of God, the benefit of being part of the remnant of the house of Israel, the benefit of being in the church. God carries his church in his strong arms and he will not let go. God does not have to be like this, but he is. He chooses to be. This is the God who says, I am he. If you read in verse 4, one phrase I skipped over. God says, I am he. Over and over again in the, ch in the verses of the chapters of Isaiah 41, Isaiah 45 it is, uh, 41 to 51, sorry. In those chapters, over and over again, we hear this repeated refrain from God saying, I am he. And I went through and I paraphrased the, uh, the verses surrounding each statement of I am he from God. And, and this is the list we get from God telling, himself, telling us about himself. He is the one who is in charge of the nations. He is the one who does things that no one can undo. He is the one who blots out our sins for his own sake. He is the one who is the first and the last. He is the one who comforts us. As I mentioned earlier, God established, God established our church to be a channel through which he carries his people. That even includes our church, City of Hope. We bear one another's burdens. If you are struggling this morning with a burden, go give it to somebody else in this room. And if you find yourself this morning rather burdenless, go get a burden from somebody else in our church. That is the way of God's church. That's what we read in Galatians chapter 6. That's the way God applies uh, Isaiah 46, verses 3 and 4. And God himself is strong enough to carry us and all of our burdens. I think in our setting, in our church, I think it's more likely that we do realize that our idols are worthless and burdensome. We know that God is better than these things that we carry. We know in our minds that God is better, but we struggle to turn that knowledge of our mind into heart and action. Well, we can thank God that the, our struggles do not invalidate the promise of God to carry his people. Our struggles to let go of the burdensome idols of verses 1 and 2 do not invalidate the love of God in verses 3 and 4. The only condition, if you want to call it that, upon, uh, placed upon receiving God's care in these verses is to be part of the family of God. And becoming part of the family of God is, is simple. Accept, understand, recognize, believe that Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows, took the burden of our sins upon himself, died, and rose again. Jesus already did this work. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for thousands of hundreds and thousands of years ago, starting this nation on your own, expanding it to people like us through the work of Jesus Christ, and continuing, continuing to steadfastly carry us from the beginning to the end. Thank you for carrying our church as we have seen even in these last few months. And may we do and work and live out of the knowledge, Lord, that you are carrying us, you are already there, and you will always be there. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.